Monaco is a terrible track by most measures. It's narrow, bumpy, slow, and nearly impossible for drivers to pass. And yet, it is by far everyone's favorite place to be. The must-win for drivers. The crown jewel of motorsport. Why? Despite all of the track's objective shortcomings, it works. Year after year, producing great racing, tragic upsets, and lifelong memories. Monaco is one of life's beautiful anomalies, where the atmosphere, the energy, and the history turns the least suitable location for a race in the world into the best race in the world. This is the F1 Show. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 51 for coverage of the 2009 Monaco Grand Prix. I'm Robin Warner. And I'm Jim Lau and we, it, Monaco is just one of my favorite tracks and it's so great to be back here. Mine too. A uh, big day of racing we have today with the Indy 500. Uh, there's a NASCAR race. Whatever. Going on right now. But uh, but I mean Monaco is just still one of my favorites and uh, you know we, we had an astounding race but before we get to that let's cover all the... Uh, news and bits and bobs from the last two weeks and of course the biggest story going on right now in formula one is what's going on with formula one with the rule changes proposed for next year and beyond uh teams threatening to quit and all that and uh the current state of things um just to kind of sum that up and and presumably people have been keeping track a little bit but um we talked about the FIA um, proposing a 40 million pound budget cap for t- starting next year starting in 2010 um and that would be it's a, just a drastic reduction in, in the amount teams are allowed to spend and a really big change to the rules. Um, Ferrari actually filed a lawsuit against the FIA saying that that's in breach of the contract that they've got with the FIA. Which um, they lost. That lawsuit, yeah, but that was filed in the FIA's favor saying, no, we can, you know, the FIA is allowed to make changes such that, you know, like these. Um, but the other, the subtext, it's sort of the, not in the legal sense, but uh, all these teams, um, Ferrari, then Toyota, and uh, Renault, and the, all, the, all the manufacturers. All the, all the big ones, yeah, um, threatened to say, we're not going to be part of F1 if this two-tiered system is in place, where um, teams can either accept the budget cap or and, and then get some extra technical freedoms, or not accept the budget cap, spend as much as they want, but be limited by sort of a different set of rules. So... In my mind, uh, and I don't know if it's optimistic or, or what, but I just feel like there's they'll, they'll come to some kind of agreement. Uh, there's a lot of different opinion on this. Uh, some people say, you know, get these manufacturers out of F1. That's not the point. They should be making engines, but it should be small constructors building race cars. Uh, some people say, you know, for F1 is nothing without Ferrari and nothing without these big names. And if it's just a, se- a series with a bunch of names no one's ever heard of, that that's not going to be interesting to people. But well, that's really is the big deal, though. I mean, it, it, we're not just talking about. The manufacturers, we're talking about Ferrari, and Ferrari has a 60-year history in Formula 1. Uninterrupted 60 years of participation, yeah. And for them to say we're out is quite remarkable. And a little side note that comes from this is learning a little bit more about exactly how much power Ferrari has in the Formula 1 world. I mean, one of the things that came out of them suing is that uh, Ferrari had veto power to rule changes. Yeah. And uh, so you get this sense of the, you know, the conspiracy that, you know, Ferrari, you know, has control over the FIA and all this. And you say, come on. It's just like, well, no, maybe not. <laughs> Do you, yeah. You hear some of these things. It, it's quite crazy. When it comes out, uh, when you have these type of issues and all this stuff starts coming out, it's really quite remarkable. But, of course, both Kimi Raikkonen and Felipe Massa saying they totally support Ferrari and these type of things. So – the fact that not only the manufacturer is talking about leaving, but Ferrari is seriously threatening to pull out is quite serious. It, it definitely is, uh, but like I say, I remain optimistic, and, and um, it sounds like there have been negotiations over the over the course of this weekend before the race and all that. There have been a bunch of meetings, and I guess uh, Flavio Briatore had everyone out to his yacht, and they had a little you know head-to-head meeting on a yacht, as yep, we have always said. Yep, yep. Um, and apparently there's a cost cap solution in sight, says Max Mosley, and uh, some of the proposals, some of the rumors, nothing's official yet, but uh, that maybe the cost cap will still be on the books, but maybe for 2012. That way they'll have a couple years to sort of get the rules and everything figured out, get the fine details. Which makes so much more sense. Yeah, because coming up halfway through the 09 season with a drastic rule change for 2010 um, really does seem like a, I don't know if it's technically a breach of contract, I mean, I guess it's not technically a breach of con- brief 
breach of contract. Wow. But uh, it does seem um, a bit heavy-handed and, uh, and not, a, not a good way to run the organization. So I think they'll, they'll be able to find some, con- some, some middle ground here, keep the manufacturers, keep Ferrari involved. Um, and, uh, you know, the big sort of uh, deadline that actually was passed was May 30, uh, was, you know, coming up. Yeah, to re-register so, all the teams yeah, to re-register for the 2010 season. It, yeah, it, normally we don't even really hear about this. It's like, is Ferrari going to re-register for F1 next year? And that's always been a no-brainer. But, yeah, um, it's not that's, news. Yeah, that's actually is news this year is are they technically going to reapply to be in the and now they're going to have late fees and all sorts of other nonsense yeah and i I think yeah there are going to be some extra costs and some late fees and whatever but ultimately um they are they're allowed now to sign up with a little uh an extra clause saying we will be in the in the championship um unless certain things happen you know unless unless certain rules come so they've kind of got a little they've they've got a solution they're going to be signing up and Formula I mean, One is not falling apart as we know it. It's really a good thing because, honestly, the FIA was just – they were just biting off way more than they could chew. I mean, let's think about the fairly drastic rule changes we got from 08 to 09. Yeah. You know, we got a completely different car. We had um, some – you know, we had some cost-cutting measurements put into place. You know, they're now going public with the weights of the car and um, all these type of things so that you're reducing the number of people necessary – at the track for each team, that kind of thing. So they've already done some cost cutting. They've already make, taken some measurements to reduce the cost of customer engines and this type of thing. So there's changes going on. So they then just year after year keep coming up with these drastic rule changes. Like once everyone gets 09 figured out, it's going to be totally different for 2010. Yeah, that's, that's just not the way to govern anything. So uh, I, I think it's good. I think, I, I think frankly, the FOTA... Uh, is the sensible one here, and hopefully we can come to conclusions. Now, like Jim says, I think them actually quitting and not competing in Formula 1 is a fairly idle threat. But I think it's a serious threat in the sense that if the FAA did do something as ridiculous as these these caps, which really would add a, a duality to the racing, that they would be forced to leave because it just wouldn't be right. So... It's awfully ridiculous, and the politics of Formula One is really outweighing the racing these days, and it's really sad. Yeah, so we don't want to spend a huge amount of time on that, but the the current state is it looks like there's going to be some solutions, and hopefully over the next couple of weeks before the Turkish Grand Prix, um, these things will be set up. Uh, they will have signed the agreements, and they will have said, okay, we're going to you know push off this decision for a little bit later, or you know they'll find some way to continue to have Formula One with you know all the, the teams we know and love in it, or at least most of the teams. I mean, there may be well, it's, um, it's, Toyota, maybe you know they may just decide it's not worth spending the money anymore. Right, sure. Um, there may be some other changes, but nothing huge and drastic here. Well, and speaking of teams to love, there might be a couple of new teams to love, uh, one of which, which I think is now official, is uh, USF1. Yes, they, right? have, they have officially entered their we want to be an F1 team paperwork or whatever. And yes. This is, again, this process that we've never even really known right. about before. So, because have most they been cases, accepted yeah. yet? Um, I don't think they have, actually. Okay, technically. so that, that part, there's, see, the, way, the way it works is, you know, teams can enter a bid to become a Formula One team, but then I guess the FIA or the FOM or both have to approve the bid and before they're allowed to enter the team. However, what's interesting is uh, we have potentially – a fair number of teams wanting to come in. There's been discussion from Lola, uh, who you know I'm sure most of our English fans know. It's a British uh, uh, race car building team, and uh, they've done a lot of successful things. They built very successful champ cars. You know they've built a lot of good ALMS cars and other sports cars, things like that. But also this one I found interesting: uh, an F3, a British Formula Three team, Lightspeed, wants to enter into Formula One. And then also there's been discussions with ProDrive and David Richards entering Formula One. And I've even heard rumors that uh, Lola might partner with ProDrive and collectively enter Formula One. So there's there's a lot of possibilities here. We could have up to, I think, 26 cars on the grid. How about that? That that would be something, especially at a place like Monaco. <laughs> had, <laughs> yes. We already yeah. had issues with traffic and all that. And that's uh, – that. I mean, that I think it would be great – I. Don't imagine that all the current teams will continue. So, I mean, I think in practices probably maybe we'll get 22 again, maybe 24. But uh, that would be pretty wild, and uh, it is it is interesting to see. So right now, like you said, there's a lot of those things are rumors. Um, we'll certainly be reporting either on the Facebook page or, yep. of course, in future podcasts yep. um, when these entries start to become official. I think in two weeks' time um, – 
the deadline will have have passed, and we will be able to say who's officially in and out. I don't know when they release that list, but we'll we'll get back with you guys. On yeah, that. we'll we'll definitely stay on top of it. But like Jim says, we don't want to dwell on it. Which means we must move on to qualifying. And I am curious. Do you want to start with the good, the bad, or the ugly? Well, let's start with Q3 or Q1, the okay. beginning of the first Q1. session. Well, then I think we're starting with the ugly. That is definitely the ugly. Um, BMW, oh. both cars out in Q1. Uh, they just could not sucked. get the pace There's, together. They sucked. They, yes. I, I've never seen such, such a precipitous walk backward along the performance line. Yeah. It's well, just first amazing. thing, yeah, on Thursday practice, um, instead of Friday in, in Monaco, the Fridays they don't race, so it's Thursday's practice. Um, Robert Kubica's engine blew up in just a huge way. Uh-huh. As soon, like, he just left the pits, and it was like up, coming up the hill and just bam. So he didn't get a single lap done. Um, it was uh, you know horrible as far as getting the car set up and getting some uh, you know fuel worked out and, and getting the setup all fine-tuned. Um, but So, you, okay, understand maybe, okay, Kubica's going to be slow and, and take, some, take some getting time to get up to speed. But Heidfeld was dog slow as well, and they just said, yeah. you know, the track doesn't suit I mean, the car. And, and Heidfeld was actually... One place above Kubica in qualifying, but I mean, what were they? Uh, you know, 18th and 19th or something like that. I mean, it was it was pretty pathetic. Yeah, um, and basically they just said 17 and 18. They're baffled by the lack of pace. They said, "Well, you know, we were really moving forward in Barcelona, and now we just aren't." And they said, "You know, the track doesn't suit the car." Were they moving forward in Barcelona? Uh, I didn't. I didn't think they were. I'm that not sure. I mean, they, they thought they were. Now. Um, they weren't the worst of the worst, though. Yes, there's this other team that's you know spends gobs and gobs of money, the most money, I believe, perhaps, and that would be Toyota. Both cars out in Q1, dead last. Yes, 19th and 20th in terms of speed, and uh, really, this one surprised me more than anything else because Toyota had been pretty consistently strong. They were looking really good, and they're actually still third in drivers' championship even yeah. after the results from this weekend. I mean, they're they're not like. You know, typical Toyota. Oh, they're out in Q1. Um, and this quote from Timo Glock maybe says it all. There is something that we did not understand for the weekend. It's like they just yeah. didn't. They just didn't have it. They said there's, there's some stuff to change. The overall pace is not there. It's just things aren't gelling there. Something and, didn't and, come together. And Yaro Trulli's one and only Grand Prix win is at Monaco. Yeah, Trulli knows this place. Uh, you know, Glock. I'm not as sure about. I don't know how he performed here in GP2. But I mean, uh, you know truly knows this place and uh, so i don't think it's the drivers it's just toyota could not figure something out but then finally so that we encompass all of q1 lewis hamilton yeah the bad um, the ugly if you ask me well fair enough <laughs> uh, yeah so that was in during q1 he was setting he set a reasonable lap time um you know he was doing a couple laps and he was on another flyer cooked it a little too hard and uh just I guess I kind of outbraked himself, would you say, yeah, and just slid the into the tire end. barrier, and it just hit the left rear uh, hard enough to to break the suspension. They actually had to red flag the session for a little while to get his car out of the way because it was right on the line there, and uh, so his time ended up being good enough for um, what was it, sixteenth, right? Just out of yeah. Q2, mm-hmm. and uh, the, me- the mechanics were probably frantically working to fix the car, but could not get it back out in time. I mean, once Q1 ended, uh, Lewis did not improve, and actually, during p- part of the repairs, they had to change his gearbox, so that was a, a penalty, yeah. so Lewis and actually ended, ended up, up starting, starting 19th. I thought it was last, but either well, way. I, I think it was 19th. I think Locke was the last. But so far back, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right, and here's the thing. I mean, Hamilton was second fastest in second practice, Thursday second practice. Yeah, he was looking really good. And he was looking very good. And he was interviewing, saying he was hoping to be in the top five for qualifying and everything else. And he was very visibly devastated by this slip-up and this accident. That was the slowest walk I've ever seen from uh, anyone. And he just very slowly walked from his car back to the pits. He was just head down, just looked yeah. like a kid that dropped his ice cream cone on the sidewalk. Man, Because of, just... of all the places to start back in the pack, I mean, every once in a while you can start way low and, and fill up with fuel and something magical might happen, but Monaco, no you're just not going to get You're just yeah. not going to get around all the... I mean, there's just he, as good as he is at passing people, um, you just can't make enough on-track passes in Monaco to really make it work. So he just he knew that as soon as, uh, as, soon as it had gone wrong, and he, you could just see it right there. All right, well, skipping along to the front in Q3, I have to give a shout-out to my boy, Kimi Raikkonen, who finished... Second in qualifying, just two hundredths off a of pole position. But uh, Raikkonen showing some pace, first of all, out qualifying Massa for once, and uh, and just in general being very strong. And uh, also uh, Sebastian Vettel qualifying, uh, a, I'd say, a disappointing fourth 
because he was, I think, about the lightest car in the 20-car grid. Uh, he only had, uh, he was only 631 kilos uh, heavy with fuel. Yeah, and everyone his, else. Was his in strategy the 40s got screwed 50s. up because I think he ran into traffic. I don't know, was it Alonzo uh, or I forget who he ca- he You're ended up behind qualifying in strategy. qualifying. Yeah, so Vettel had a, a, a plan. It was the end of the real light start, start early, get some get some good pace out over the over the uh, bronze and all that. But it just didn't work out with qualifying, and there weren't any penalties or anything in, involved with that. But um, yeah, that just didn't go how he wanted, and uh, that's which is unfortunate. Yeah, and that so third place went to uh, Rubens Barrichello who had been really quick all weekend. He had, and just couldn't quite put together as, as a lap as fast. And again, I think uh, he had an issue with his rear tires or something. He weren't quite uh, up to up to grip. But, but man, Button just had a wicked lap, the, the, the pole lap. Um, Once again, Jensen Button is on pole. He is just unstoppable in this car. Yeah, which just shows it's not just a matter of the car being brilliant and he just happens to be along for the ride. I mean, he's this has been in wet conditions and dry conditions on fast tracks, on street circuit. I mean, there's really no other track like Monaco and, you know, Button and Braun have shown that they can do it here yet again. It's just it's just amazing. Yeah, I, I, I think, and that's exactly right, Jimmy. You have to credit the driver as much as the car in a place like Monaco. You look at the in-car cameras and you see what these guys are doing you have it can't just be the car here it can't and yeah. uh it, it, i think it's quite impressive you basically have to you just i think this is a track where the most confident drivers are going to do well cuz you have to trust that where you're placing the car is going to be okay i mean they're literally inches from the armco in places and i look at that and i'm just it takes my breath away that would be very difficult for me to do i'd want more space than that. Yeah, and you can see, especially in, in Jensen's qualifying lap, where he's you know putting the power down wicked early and modulating the throttle out of like almost all the corners. Mm-hmm. He's you know mm-hmm. you, you can't just get around the corner and mash the gas because you know there's not there's hardly any actual straights on this track at all, and uh, you know with no traction control, it's all up to the drivers to get the wheel you know to, to manage traction control. But just pushing it on every single corner, and like you say that the fact that it was point oh two five seconds that set, that got him pole position over Kimi Raikkonen means that pushing on out you know out of every single corner was really what it took to get on the pole. So yes, an absolutely. astounding lap from those guys. Um, as far as the rest of the uh, qualifying, it was I mean having. The Toyotas and BMWs and Hamilton it, sort of you know get Q1 out of the way. Um, the usual suspects that uh, down near the back of the grid actually all made it to Q2. So both STRs, both Force Indias uh, made it into Q2, and uh, so it was good results for those guys. And uh, just they you know were, they were doing solid performances. And uh, and then like yeah, you mentioned it was some quick notables of Felipe Massa managed fifth place. Uh, Nico Rosberg uh, collected uh, uh, got six points in qualifying, which you know was decent because once again Nico Rosberg was fastest in Thursday practice. He's done this countless times, and this time he was able, able to translate to at least a decent qualifying position. Right, and uh, that was reasonable. Hecky Kovalainen in seventh. Uh, I'm sure that Hamilton, if if Kovalainen could have managed seventh, I'm sure uh, Hamilton wouldn't have done much better than that. So that again is a disappointment. Mark Webber in eighth, Alonso in ninth. And uh, Kaz Nakajima qualifying 10th. Yep. And uh, so just as our quick uh, qualifying teammate uh, comparison, um, we had Fernando Alonso in 9th and his teammate Nelson Piquet in 12th. Not not it. too bad, you know. They, he's he's holding on because because all those other drivers were out. You know, Nelson Nelson doing all right here. So mm-hmm. we'll mm-hmm. just we'll we'll leave it at that. And let's get into the race. With a blue-lit, mountainous backdrop, Jensen Button led Rubens Barrichello and Kimi Raikkonen into Turn 1 at Monaco. Rubens utilized the clean line and softer tires to outlaunch and pass Raikkonen at the start. And immediately, both Braun GP cars pulled away from Raikkonen's Ferrari and the rest of the field. After just 11 laps, the very light Sebastian Vettel pitted his Red Bull for fuel and a much-needed set of tires. On the same lap, Sebastian Buemi slammed into the back of Nelson Piquet, ending both drivers' day. But despite the tight spaces, the accident only brought out a local yellow. And just six laps later, Vettel himself ran out of road, hitting the tires at St. Devote, ending his day as the third retirement. In that time frame, Button pulled a comfortable lead from his teammate before pitting on lap 16. 
But it wasn't until lap 29 that Fernando Alonso pitted for the first time from fourth place, once again getting the most out of his Renault. The following lap, BMW Sauber driver Robert Kubica pitted from 15th and got out of the car, presumably with an overabundance of suckiness being the cause. That left 16 cars on the track for the remaining 48 laps around the Principality. With Jensen Button decisively ahead, the race for second and third heated up. Massa running fast laps, putting pressure on Raikkonen, only for the Finn to respond and in turn pressuring Rubens Barrichello. Mark Webber and his Red Bull also got into the hunt. On lap 53, McLaren's only hope, Heki Kovalainen, spun and hit the wall in the swimming pool, losing 7th place and any chance of his team to collect points. Just a few laps later, the front runners began to make their final pit stops, and after the last lug nut was tightened, it was clear that Braun GP would once again prevail. And for the fifth time in six tries, Jensen Button takes the checkered flag and wins the Monaco Grand Prix. Teammate Rubens Barrichello followed several seconds behind in second, holding off both Ferraris, settling for third and fourth. This time, Raikkonen besting Massa for third. The hard-charging Aussie, Mark Webber, finished fifth in his Renault-powered Red Bull, followed by the Williams Toyota of Nico Rosberg in sixth, who desperately needed a decent result this year. Unfortunately, his teammate, Kazuki Nakajima, couldn't follow suit, hitting the wall on the final lap of the race. He was 11th at the time. In 7th came the factory Renault and Spain's hero, Fernando Alonso, and Sebastian Bourdais collected a point, finishing 8th for Toro Rosso. Jim, Monaco was a crowd pleaser. Indeed it was. Thankfully, we didn't actually have any safety car periods today, which is a rarity in Monaco. Despite six cars being out of it. Yeah, man, the, the, the marshals were on top of it today, getting any kind of damaged cars right up and out with and only local yellows. Trains everywhere. It was, it was oh, pretty impressive. Oh, it was great. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, just off, off the start, um, Jensen and, and, and Rubens behind him just really took off and just ran with it. I yeah, mean, for a while, Kimi Raikkonen was hanging with, uh, with, with Rubens, but uh, even after, after a little while of that, it was just... It was just all, it was like the Jensen Button show. It was amazing. Yeah. So this guy just continues to impress. And the thing about it was, is that it it seemed like the first five or six laps was all Team Braun GP. And then Raikkonen started answering those uh, times and started keeping up. But then Button, out of nowhere, just took off and left Barrichello for dead. Yep. And uh, really, it was clear that this was Button's race to lose. Uh, after the first round of pit stops. And Barrichello doing his Barrichello thing of, you know, holding up the rest of the field yep. while his main guy goes off into the sunset. Yep. So, oh, you know, oh, the perennial bridesmaid uh, Barrichello the there. bridesmaid, exactly. Indeed. And can I just say that Barrichello looked like he was beat up in a bar fight this weekend. I don't know what happened to him. He had a cut lip, his skin was all torn up, and he had this wicked goatee. At first, I thought he looked like a Klingon. But then <laughs> I refined... My opinion, and and, and uh, realized that it was just, you know, a, a broken in a man in a bar fight. Indeed. So. so we don't really know what that was about, but doesn't matter. He still he did a great job this weekend. Yeah, second place is a really good result. Yeah. It's just that uh, he wants to win, and I don't know if he'll ever get a chance. Yeah. So like we mentioned, uh, Lewis Hamilton, starting from just way, way, way back, uh, made a couple of passes and, you know, moved up. He was up to 18th. <laughs> you know, he passed truly on yeah, the, in the I, opening laps. He didn't. He couldn't just – he just couldn't make much of his day today. It was just a bad – it was a bad weekend for him. Yep. Um, and then, you know, we had Massa, um, you know, looking pretty racy. I mean, he was he – was, what was he, fourth in there? But uh, looking looking real solid, but uh, trying to make a pass. And, and Nico Rosberg actually also looking really, you know, doing a, a yeah, really good Rosberg job. Rosberg held his own. Um, we had Massa, you know, cut the chicane uh, after the tunnel, which was a, a common thing. You know, the FIA had warned people about you can't do four wheels off. You, you've got to stay on the track. Um, and if you have all four wheels over the chicane, um, they, it wasn't quite clear what any penalty would be. But we heard that several drivers actually got warnings, yeah. um, specifically Ferrari and They kept and, and talking Massa. about how there was going to be penalties for people that took four wheels off the track. Because Monaco's kind of unique in the sense that, you know, the, the track goes around a certain way. And you have the uh, the ribbed the ribbing to the curbs, indicate yeah. the track. And then, but it's still just pavement. Still, just you know, it's still just road there. Yeah, there's, not there's nothing else that kind of indicates or, the end yeah. of the track that would actually slow you down. So uh, they just need to monitor that. But the problem is, uh, uh, they were they were quite limp wristed this time around. Seeming you know, the safety stewards usually love smacking people around, but this time they just gave warnings. Yeah, they just warned them, and I guess it was a three strikes and you're out thing. And Mazda had two strikes and. 
never didn't push it too hard after that. So, but he, okay, so he tried to pass Vettel. Um, he breaks breaks too late. He he straight lines the chicane, and then so and so you know, and, and then actually he he got back out on track ahead of Vettel. So because he gained that position by going across the you know the the chicane. Um, Massa's got to slow down to let Vettel back by. So you're talking about this was around lap ten. This was yeah lap seven. Um, and so so Massa has to back off and uh, and you know let Vettel by and then Rosberg. And so Vettel, this just to set paint the picture for everybody, Vettel's in fourth, and by now for some reason his rear tires had just gone gone away from him, and he was slowing everyone down. And Massa was all over Vettel. Yeah. In fifth, and Rosberg was behind Massa in sixth. Yes. And, uh, and so, you know, Massa got around Vettel, but only by virtue of straight-lining the chicane because he just pushed a little bit too hard coming out of the tunnel. Right. And then he had – so he had to give the position back, and, and, and so he did. He, you know, Massa slowed down, and Nico Rosberg used that opportunity to, to squeak by. Um, and I, Only which, just. Which I thought was opportunistic. I mean, I, you know, it, it's – I guess that's what you're supposed to do as a race driver, and you want to use any advantage you can. But yeah. you know, the only reason Massa was slowing down was to let it, you know, was to to let uh, Vettel by. Um, he wasn't, you know, he didn't have to let Rosberg by, of course, right. and uh, and it was a little opportunistic. But I guess it was ultimately Massa's own mistake in straight-lining the, the chicane that right. put him in that position in the first place. So I, I thought was, it was brilliant. I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I thought it was a little a little wanky, but uh, hey, he made it work, and um, and there you go. So yeah, I. I, I those early laps of the race, it was quite interesting to see. Vettel was hard charging. He had the super soft tires. He was on the lightest fuel load, and he's in a really good car. But just, I don't know. I guess Vettel just, I guess Monaco is a place where the experience really pays off because Vettel wasn't his usual ultra-quick form today. He claims that he got hollowed up in qualifying like we stated earlier. But in the race, he didn't seem to have much of any pace to, he never challenged uh, any of the Ferraris. Yeah. Know, we never challenged Raikkonen or anything. Yeah. And like you said, you know, Vettel started on the super soft tires, and they wore out, you know, too early on. I think he was just pushing really hard because he knew he was on light fuel. He had to make some moves and, and try to get out and get some track position to make the best of what turned out to be a bad situation for him. Um, but he was only one of a few cars to start on the super softs. Uh, here in Monaco, they had the choice between soft and super soft tires. They didn't do their usual Bridgestone um, where they, they go one, one tire choice apart um, to going hard to soft or, or super soft to medium or whatever. Um, but uh, so the only guys on, on super softs at the beginning of the race were Lewis Hamilton, who I think just wanted to make as many passes as he could in the very beginning, yep. trying to, again, make the best of a bad situation. Vettel, um, Adrian Sutil, and, uh, but the Braun GP guys both um, started on super softs, and they yep. said for them it was, it was no just fine. It, it, was, it was no worries. And I, this is something we've been saying all year that uh, a lot of the commentaries on TV have been saying all year is that the Braun GP car is easy on its rear tires and on its tires in general. And right. again, that showed, and again, that proved to be very helpful to both drivers. Yes, and um, as Jensen said in the interviews, the soft tire was the, the tire to be on, which is it's a little confusing because it's a relatively hard tire, but you know the, the super soft just wore out far too quickly, um, and, and if you really needed to keep pushing, it wasn't the tire to be on. Um, where and, and in a lot of cases, it's the other way around. You want the extra grip, and the hard tire um, just doesn't give it to you. So um, Braun just got it right strategically. The, Again. The driving was there. The car Again. was there. I mean, it, uh, man, these, these guys. guys I mean, five out of six. Jensen Button has won every single race but one, and I believe that was Malaysia. It was Malaysia or Bahrain. Now I can't think. Yeah, I don't, but I mean, they've got more points than their nearest rival. They got more, or twice the points than their nearest rival. I mean, it's it's just amazing what what these guys are doing. And people are hesitant with you know superstitions and all that to talk about. Oh, it's going to be them for the championship, or it's going to be this or that. But I'm so, okay. Vettel won China. I'm sorry. Yeah, was, uh, went in between. So yeah, Jensen Buttons won every race but China, and statistically speaking, Jensen Buttons won the world championship this year. Yeah, and it's it's. Something crazy will have to happen for that not to not to transpire, but crazy things have been happening all season. So I guess you know who, who knows. Yeah, uh, really, really quite fascinating. And the race was quite good to watch. The, the first stint before a lot of the drivers uh, pitted for their uh, uh, first pit stops was fantastic. It was a lot of tight racing, a lot of fast lap swapping, and a really good racing. The, it tended to settle down after the second pit, but just periodically cars spun off and hit the walls and stuff. It was just very tight. I think, uh, again, you know, a lot of people have been struggling with rear-end grip in these 09 cars, and I think that was part of the reason that uh, uh, some people just couldn't hold on to the rear end. I mean, Hecky Kovalainen spun, uh, uh, Lewis Hamilton in qualifying, uh, you know, uh, Kaz Nakajima. A lot of these guys, it's just they couldn't, the rear end, they just couldn't hang on to it and uh, cause some spin. But the, the other thing that I think we need to discuss is 
is this a flash in the pan for Ferrari, or is this a sign of real uh, of a real comeback for the Scuderia? Well, they are using. Um, they've got some new. Um, you know, they've got a modified version of, of the of the F60 that they just introduced in Spain. They've already changed around the rear the, packaging the a little bit. Tub. Yeah, um, it's been revised to improve cooling, and they're you know they're just doing a little more to, to tighten things up around the back of the uh, uh, the back of the car. They've got some interest, interesting aerodynamic bits on the on the edge of the floor near the rear tires to try to uh, calm down these these air vortices and all that. So. Um, you know, Monaco. It's not a high-speed track, relatively. You know, relative to to F1 stuff, averaging only 100 miles an hour. Yeah, but um, any aerodynamic assistance you can get is is you know well worth it. I mean, the guys crank on as much wing as they possibly can. So anything well, yeah. that's I helping mean, there's your still aero, a lot of aero efficiency you can get out of, especially drag. The minimum amount of drag when you when you're you know averaging 100 miles an hour. There's still plenty of aero to be gained. Yes. So um, maybe some of these developments. Um, it's it's hard to say because, like we mentioned, the you know, Monaco takes it a little bit less of the car, and it's more about the driving. And I guess this shows us that you know the drivers are, are are still right there. And we'll just have to see going forward, though. I'm not sure that this really is a big turning point for Ferrari. I kind of hope yeah. for their sake that it is, because they've been in such bad shape with some strategic calls and some political issues and all that. That I, I hope that they can do well just for their own sake uh, and and continue to go on and, and you know get some results. But uh, yeah, I mean, good. It was good points for them this weekend, but it's almost. You know, it's it's still early days for the season, I guess, but it's almost too little, too late. I mean, it's this is not, um, it's, it's not like they're they're right up there at the top of the leaderboard and they just needed a couple extra points. This was uh, they're still they're still pretty far down there. So right, and I agree. And I want to give a uh, finally give a quick shout out to Mark Weber for doing as well as he did, uh, finishing fifth. Uh, I I think that's impressive. And uh, Mark Mark's a great driver and he's doing well. And I I just think he he deserves a mention. So uh, with that being the case, I think it's time to hear what you guys have to say. Yes, and uh, let's go into listener feedback. Alrighty, we've got wonderful feedback from you guys as always, uh, mostly coming from the Facebook page, which if uh, you're not wise to that, you can get to by going to facebook.f1show.com and log in there and you can leave comments and uh, see what else what else people are talking about. Uh, we've gotten a bunch of predictions. I think it's great. Uh, people have been joining us in the predictions and uh, some people, frankly, doing better than us, uh, some people not so much. Um, like, what are you talking about? Our boy Adam Lowe said, oh, Masa pull, Masa win. Uh, that didn't quite transpire. No. Um, we had Dave Stevens predicting Jensen on pole, Vettel for the win. Um, he was no. half right. Jensen on pole, you know, he had that. Well, um, and uh, but no, unfortunately, Vettel did uh, did not make it work. Um, and and we even had in uh, in an email um, from uh, Peter Cansfield. Um, he, he had a, a prediction as to where uh, PK would would crash. Actually, uh, let me uh, find it here. Um, yeah, on the subject of Renault, I think it's it's, it's time to let PK Junior go. Um, you know, we'd like to open the betting with predictions that he will go by the British Grand Prix. So that's pretty that, early. That's a good prediction. You know, a, a valid prediction there. And uh, I'd like to get we'd like to get our thoughts on which corner he'll stuff the car into this weekend. And we got to say, while uh, while PK uh, did crash out, it was not his fault. Um, this time, the best we know, it's not his fault. Yes. So and uh, you know again we it go was back with to Sebastian Buemi to yeah, I'm Buemi, not sure we covered very that. young he's a rookie 20 years old you know it, this place I think it pays dividends to no well <laughs> then again Hamilton knows uh, uh, Monaco very well and it didn't pay him dividends either so right yeah don't know but yes uh, uh, we also I want to thank uh, I want to thank our comment on the blog from Oliver C. Uh, yes, we're, you know, there's not all of us are just into the IRL and NASCAR, and we appreciate uh, we appreciate your uh, compliment. So uh, thank you very much. Okay, um, we had from AJ um, uh, in an email. Uh, he had some some predictions, <laughs> and I, you know, it's, I hate to laugh at these because uh, we we know what happened after the race now. But he had uh, Alonso winning, didn't quite no, happen. No. Uh, Hamilton on pole. No, not really. And his fearless prediction that no brawn car will finish on the podium. Ooh! Wow. So um, whoever meant- whoever between you and I gets a Coke, um, unfortunately, AJ does not get one. Because no, that- no, no. No Coke for you. You are not allowed to go to the store. Don't even think about it. Right. And uh, But they did have two questions. Uh, one, if, if we think that uh, F1 drivers would dominate the Indy 500 if it was, like in the old days, a mixed race with F1 drivers and IndyCar drivers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. 
the modern oval driver versus the modern road racing driver is getting diff- more and more different. The yeah. delta between the two driving styles is growing. It, it these guys, I mean, on paper it seems easy. The Indy 500, for example, which which we also watched. These guys are flat out around the entire track. They never lift off the gas. If they're, if they're doing unless, it right. Unless yeah. there's traffic or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But if you don't get it just right, you get the line wrong. Not only – I mean you're basically screwed. If yeah. you don't get it just right, you're going to hit the wall. Yeah. And you're going 220 miles an hour. So the techniques are so very different. I think uh, uh, Juan Pablo Montoya is an excellent, excellent example of that. You know, he went to NASCAR, and he's been a mid-pack driver since he's gotten there. So I, I don't think so. I think these days it's very difficult. I mean, there as well, there's you're a lot more dependent on car setup. Yep. You know, you need a driver that knows what he's doing, but the car at the end of the day is going to be what's slicing through the air. And the better the car does that, the better off you are. As long as you're good enough to handle the car, that's going to be what it is. And, of course, good strategy and, and, exactly. and a bit of luck with fuel fuel timing and, and safety yeah. car, or what is it, pace car, yeah, whatever they call it in Indy, forgot already. Yeah. But they had, what, eight eight safety car periods, uh, eight yeah. yellow flag se- yeah. sessions, and, um, I mean, it was really kind of a crazy race, but... Uh, you know that's that's a we whole other deal. Um, the other the other question uh, AJ had for us was, uh, you know, there's some some guys that do um, double duty with Indy 500 and the Coca Cola 600, which yes. is the, the NASCAR stock car race, which the no same one day did this year. Um, but do you think we might see someone try to race Monaco, Indy, and uh, and NASCAR all on the same day? Which maybe actually t- timing might be possible with the time change. No, can't do it. But no, can't do it because it's an eight hour flight from Europe to the states. And the Monaco Grand Prix finishes up 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, our time, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, the the uh, Indy 500 starts at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. So you'd have to you'd have to go Mach what two, and uh, and from the from Get Europe it, to yeah your direct States. chartered whatever you know Concorde going so yeah impossible. not going to happen and like we mentioned even if it were timing wise possible to get there um, no one that did that if they, if they did it, it would kind of be more of a uh, publicity thing it wouldn't you know I don't think anyone could actually be competitive in yeah. those races and but but perhaps whatever. we're taking this question too seriously it would be a fun thing to 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 arrange one day I mean, think about that's a lot of driving it's eleven hundred miles to do the Indy five hundred and the Coca Cola six hundred alone yeah and uh, and then Monaco, of all the F1 races to do, to do it in right. Monaco. I mean, that yeah, that exactly. would be it would be incredible to do. But uh, no, unfortunately, I don't think that in practice that uh, that'll that'll really happen. Um, and I think that's. Uh, I mean, we well, no, we got a couple more oh, here. Mark Hills, who the hell do Ferrari think they are? Slagging teams off who want to join F1 and saying that they have no place in F1. I wish the car makers would go back to building engines and private team building the cars. If Ferrari don't like it, then maybe they should just leave and give their space to a team that wants to be a part of F1. Well, Mark, that is a very opinionated poll. I'm wondering if you are related to a Mr. Max Mosley by any chance because that uh, seems to echo the type of uh, attitude Max Mosley has. Uh, I, I think Ferrari, I bet I, they do have a bit of arrogance in that team, but again, I mean, they've been there uh, 60 straight years. They were a big part of building F1 and turning it into being this the world's most popular sport. And I, I do think Ferrari deserve uh, some credibility. You know, some say, uh, d- no, they shouldn't be slagging on other teams. But at the same time, the other side of it is the FAA is trying to build the rules in such a way that it is advantageous to these new low-budget F1 teams. And I think more than anything, that's what Ferrari is saying isn't right. Don't change the rules just so that these new F1 teams can compete. Make the rules fair for everybody, and the really good new F1 teams will still be able to compete. Yeah. And can you imagine in practice if Ferrari did actually quit? I mean, that would be a big news story for even in the U.S. here. Um, and I think that would just p- give people the impression of if they don't really know Formula One, oh, F1, isn't that the one with all those political issues and Ferrari used to be there and now it's a whole bunch of no-names? I mean, if you're close to the sport and you know the drivers and you know the cars and the constructors, you know, names like Lola that uh, and, and ProDrive that, you know, if you're in Europe and, and into cars, you know these things. But here in the U.S., you know, people aren't going to know any of that. And they're going to say, oh, Formula One, that's one of those weird, you know, like GP2. Nobody knows really here. No one knows any of the team names in GP2 and maybe – Probably not any of the drivers, and uh, I think it would just be a bad, you know, 
that if that becomes the story rather than how good is the racing now or you know who are the guys that are the new teams and the up and coming teams if the big story is oh well that's the one that used to have Ferrari and they no longer do then I think that'd be too bad. Yeah, I agree. And uh, one comment, a new comment that was uh, from the time we're recording this podcast, listened 44 minutes ago from a James Holt. Great drive from Jensen today, early to say, but it looks like championship, like already. Also, maybe Ferraris for the Ferraris for the win by Silverstone, but is it too little, too late? Yes, probably. Uh, just to give another angle on the incremental ideas that have been mentioned, surely this would create a throwaway season in the middle of the transition, whether teams either concentrate on trying to produce a winning car on the edge of the budget cap for the middle year, or whether they should just use the in- incremental season to design a car that matches the end result budget cap and not bother too much about the results from the middle of the year. Anyone else feel sorry for Kubica? Uh, I-, I do. Uh, they stopped developing the car for last year early as it looked like it might have a shot at the championship. And now, even with the extended development time, he has no points. Must be difficult for him to take possible another team move next season. He's a talented driver. Barrichello's seat next year. Hmm. I mean, that's an interesting idea. Kubica and Button in uh, in the Braun car. That'd yeah, worth, worth thinking about. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's interesting. But it, it, the, the point, I think, in general that he's trying to make is, well... What teams decide to throw this season away and say screw it and try to develop next year's car and who pushes for the championship? Yeah, it's it's a weird a weird way of going and it's sort of I think too bad that it's gone that way because if Braun GP wants to continue and and you know capitalize on this you know their their big season of of changing you know everything from from what it used to be with Honda and all that um, you know if if by being successful this year inherently starts to mean that you can't do well next year then everyone's got to do this weird balancing game of, of stopping development and working towards the current car and all that. And I think it'll be too bad if, you know, no one can ever win a, two championships in a row anymore because of the nature of the rules change so much that you've got to quit developing your car halfway through a year to start working on next year's car. I don't think that's a good way to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's I my agree. opinion. But Yeah, because next thing you know, you're always working on next year's car. Yeah. So, I don't know. Well, I don't know about you, but I think uh, we need to move on. Uh, thanks again to everybody right. for I just, posting comments. just and want to mention, uh, send an email to feedback at F1show.com. Please do. Go to F1show.com directly, and you can actually reply to each of our individual posts. Or That's what I think is, is the most interactive, uh, where you can see whatever other fans are writing and uh, comment on everything, is just go to our Facebook page. Again, you go to facebook.f1show.com, um, or you can search for us on Facebook and find us there. And uh, we've got a whole bunch of fans there, and we really appreciate Appreciate everyone's feedback. So let's move on to some trivia. 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 (laughs) Okay, last podcast was what I thought a thrilling question, and it goes as follows. Who is the oldest person to win a Grand Prix, and which Grand Prix was it? And we're talking about with the 1950 post-war world championship None of this. It was 1931 in a Bugatti, and an auto union car came and said, we don't want that. Yeah. Uh, and we gave you guys a hint, and this was a genuine hint. The person that won only collected half points for the win. Everyone ready for the answer? I don't think we had any guesses this week. Was it Luigi Fagioli? AJ did guess that in email. Oh, okay. Go, AJ. It was, in fact, Luigi Fagioli. And it was the 1951 French Grand Prix. Oh, see, he didn't have the, the race on there. So. Yeah, so, you so get, well, you half, get half points. points. There you go. You're going to have to share your coke with somebody else, AJ. Um, now, why did he only get half points for the win? Well, it was because after 20 laps into the race, uh, Luigi pitted and gave his car to one uh, one Fangio. Manuel Fangio. Fangio. And uh, Fangio the, actually took a checkered flag. Yeah, in the crazy old days of, of F1, you know, back in the day where, like, if you and I were on a team and I had the better car, but you were, you know, higher up in the championship, I'd be like, all right, you know, get out of my, you know, I'm going to get out of the car, let you drive it, because you got a better chance. Yep. I mean, yep. I can't imagine stuff like that happening anymore, but it is kind of wild. So and uh, so that's what okay. happens. The car actually won, and he started driving that car, so um, it's, it's a weird situation by today's standards, but uh, yeah. And Luigi was what fifty years old or something when he won this race. He was quite he he's gotten on so uh, it, very fascinating. So Bear Kello, you still have some time. Yeah. Okay. So moving on now. Uh, new question. Monaco is the granddaddy of all. There is uh, so many questions that come to mind when you think of such an event like Monaco. Uh, and as we all know, 
Jensen Button was the first British driver to win the Monaco Grand Prix from pole since the great Jackie Stewart completed this feat in 1973. So I thought about it, racked my brain. The question is, what will Jim and I be doing tomorrow? That's a good one. I'm not sure people are going to know this one. I'm not sure they are. So um, that, we'll give, okay, we'll give them one hint. Oh, should we give them a hint? It, it involves cars. Yeah. Yes, yes, it does. does so, um, again, you know, you can send in your, your responses, any of the ways we previously mentioned. We better get we better get some guesses yeah. on this one. I mean, come on. Yes. Um, and with any luck, we'll actually post some uh, photos and or video of whatever it is we're doing tomorrow. Um, you know, maybe we'll put that on the Facebook page. Maybe our F1 fans will be interested in, uh, maybe we'll. in some of that maybe, stuff. Maybe, maybe we will. Maybe there'll be a photo or something. Maybe. It's, it's possible. There might be a car in the photo. Okay. So anyway, uh, you know, if, as, if we're making you guys guess uh, what we're going to be doing, I think it's only fair that we guess who's going to win the Turkish Grand Prix. Okay, so for predictions, I was brave. Yeah, what'd you have? I had Vettel on pole and oh. Vettel for the win. Oh, oh. Yeah. Woo! Okay. Uh, but Jim was also brave. Vettel came 18th, by the way, uh, you know, <clears throat> with his accident and whatnot. I'm, 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 try- I'm about to give you credit here. Okay, okay, and, sorry. And here I am. All right, all right, no, no, sorry. I'm done. Yeah, okay. salt in the wound. Okay, sorry. Jim, you had Moss on pole. I did. Yeah. No. That was dumb. Didn't work. But you had Button to win. How about it? Everyone oh, yeah. Jim well, see, uh, see, well, I had I had the whole idea that a new Ferrari would be resurgent is what I was going with the Moss yeah, pole. And, it, you I know, see. fourth place. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, yep. Whatever. Well, uh, uh, it, fair is fair. And once again, I owe you a Coke. That's twice in a row, Jim. Yeah, buddy. What are you going to do? I, I am impressed. I have to say, though, it. I'm trying not to assume that Button's just going to run away with this thing, and he keeps running away with this thing. Yeah, and I kind of it's kind of kind of boring if every time we say, "Oh, well, Button, Button." Yeah, I know, but <laughs> it would have been right. <laughs> <laughs> so indeed, but I have I've I've betted on Vettel for pole and the win two races in a row now, and I'll tell you what, I'm done with that. Okay, what do you think? Well, okay, so here's the thing. I happen to know from past races that Jensen Button really loves. The circuit at the Turkish Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. And I also happen to know, because I haven't been living in a cave, that Jensen Button likes the Braun GP car, and he's been doing well with it. Yeah. So, putting two and two together, I'm going for the big surprise. <gasps> Raikkonen in on pole. Oh. Button wins the race. Oh, boy. How about that? All right. Well, I happen to know that Felipe Massa is brilliant in Turkey, so... Um, being yeah, being the Hamilton fan that I am, I'm gonna have to go ahead and say Masa Masa. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'd rather be interesting than be right. Okay. Okay. All right. And hey, up. maybe I will be right. Let's let's say this is the beginning of a turnaround for Ferrari. Just yeah, in, in with my predictions. Masa at the helm, you say. I, I think I think if anyone's gonna do it, um, with his with his Turkey performance and whatnot, and I mean that in a nice way, performance yeah, in Turkey. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. not you, Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. Although maybe we'll see. Possibly could. Be. Okay, so that's uh, that's what I think. Let us know what you think, and we've got a week off, and then we'll be bringing you a podcast from the Turkish Grand Prix. Yes, but before we go, we have to also give a quick mention. There was another race. It was here in the states. It happened to be in this nice little state called Indiana, in a friendly little town called Indianapolis, and it happened to be the Indy 500. Yes, 500 miles, round and round she goes. Actually, a very exciting race this uh, this year, and it was. The Brazilian Elio Castro Neves that came on top. So we want to give uh, Elio Castro Neves an F1 show congratulations for a very good drive. And uh, it was a good performance. It was a very emotional win for him. Uh, Elio was actually uh, had some legal trouble here in the States. He was uh, being charged with tax evasion uh, and uh, was facing the potential of never racing again. And being deported and everything? Yeah, from the U.S. He was, uh, I guess... He was all the charges were dropped and uh, kind of a Maya Copa from uh, from the U.S. government and uh, so he was back in the race car and he came back and he won his third Indianapolis 500. I mean, as he said, you know, he got his life back because he's got his drive back with the team and yep. got back in the car and everything. Yep. So uh, just a, a, I mean, he was really, really emotional. Yes, um, taking the flag. I mean, he was he he had no words for a while. He he did his climb the fence and 
wave it to fans and everything. It was just, it was a huge, huge moment for him. And it was really, really touching. I mean, even though we haven't really been following IndyCar that closely, but to see racing like this, um, just, you know, from any drivers on any track, it was, it was really, you know, pretty incredible. Like we mentioned, right. a lot of drama in the race, eight caution periods, yep. um, just a whole bunch of passing and some, you know, just, just a bunch of interesting things going on. There was a, a rookie, um, up in what, third and fourth place for a while, um, uh, uh, Matos, yeah, fifth, yeah, yeah, Matos, and uh, and he ended up crashing out near the end. But a yeah. lot of good drama, and uh, yeah, that's you know worth looking into if you but, want to read about that, or maybe find the, the the IndyCar show. There you go, if there is one. Yeah, if, if there is one, there probably uh, is. Castro Nevis had a secret weapon. Not many people know this. He was using a performance box, and the F1 show is supported by the performance box, a GPS based lap timer, performance meter. What's a performance meter? I don't a know. Performance meter and data logger, perfect for any car nut, including the three-time any car winner Elio Castroneves, to use at track day, autocrosses, or the Indy 500. Or you can simply see what your car can do. I'm hacking this up a little bit. No, Shipping great. worldwide from Vivox USA. For more info and the online store, go to performancedrift.com. The last thing that we need to mention. Uh-oh. People definitely don't, do need to go and buy performance boxes. But as we, we've been talking about it, we've been sort of hit or miss about, about actually discussing it on the show. But in our, in our track record of having cuisine from the, the – lo- Oh, my God. I can't believe I didn't mention that. the location that. in which the, the Grand Prix is occurring – we figured, okay, Monaco. What's the the food of Monaco? You know, we we don't we don't have particular. There's not like a Mona, Monaco win dish. I don't even know what, to, what that word is. Monte Carlo win, Monte Carlopian. Um, so we okay, all right. We decided, okay, what is Monaco cuisine? Well, my guess was that it's French cuisine that's a lot more expensive. Yeah. So what we decided to do, we did not go out to eat. We made well by say we. I say we my, had help from the family. My but. aspiring. Chef, younger brother, uh, we made proper croque monsieur sandwiches. And for uh, the Americans that are listening that don't know what that is, that is a ham and cheese sandwich. But it is with some fancy cheese. Oh, and, so good! Oh yeah, <laughs> it's a whole sauce going. It's a ham and cheese sandwich, but it's not. And uh, I think Jim and I each consumed about four thousand calories. Yeah, and uh, we had some proper. Proper French cuisine and, and some wine and some wine. We had some French wine, and to make it the authentic uh, Monaco cuisine that uh, we wanted it to be, Jim and I also each burned a hundred dollar bill just to get the experience, get of the experience. some French yeah. food and yeah. mm-hmm. being out a mm-hmm. whole bunch of money. Yeah, good stuff. So that was great, and it was uh, yummy. and and you know I don't know if anyone else does any has any of these rituals or anything, but uh, be be great to hear about it if you do, and uh, if, if anyone needs the recipe and for a tasty Monaco dish and how much money to burn and in accordance with it. Um, definitely look that up or let and, us know. And for that in mind, if any of our fans have a good Turkish dish they want to throw at us, let us know. Isn't there a Turkish delight, like a candy or something? Should we just eat a bunch of candy? No. Okay, or, or we'll just eat a bunch of turkey, I think. Oh, yeah, then. turkey. That'll be good. Let's we'll yeah. go literal well, on that, that one. <laughs> I, where was – I wasn't even thinking. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know. Okay, forget that. So turkey clubs. Forget that for request, us. everybody. Excellent. Okay, until then. <laughs> until then, I am Jim Lyle. <laughs> and I'm Robin Warner. See ya. Bye.